Volume One, Chapter Fifteen of A Simple Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. A Simple Story by Elizabeth Inchbald. Volume One, Chapter Fifteen. This taunting reproof from Samford made little impression upon Miss Milner whose thoughts were all fixed on a subject of much more importance than the opinion which he entertained of her. She threw her arms about her friend the moment they were left alone, and asked, with anxiety, what she thought of her behavior. Miss Woodley, who could not approve of the duplicity she had betrayed, still wished to reconcile her as much as possible to her own conduct, and she replied, she highly commended the frankness with which she had at last acknowledged her sentiments. "'Frankness!' cried Miss Milner, staring. "'Frankness! My dear Miss Woodley, what you have just now heard me say is all a falsehood.' "'How, Miss Milner?' "'Oh, Miss Woodley,' she returned, sobbing upon her bosom, "'pity the agonies of my heart, my heart, by nature sincere.' when such are the fatal propensities it cherishes, that I must submit to the grossest falsehoods rather than reveal the truth. "'What can you mean?' cried Miss Woodley, with the strongest amazement in her face. "'Do you suppose I love Lord Frederick? Do you suppose I can love him? Oh, fly, and prevent my guardian from telling him such an untruth!' "'What can you mean?' repeated Miss Woodley. I protest you terrify me, for this inconsistency in the behavior of Miss Milner appeared as if her senses had been deranged. Fly, she resumed, and prevent the inevitable ill consequence which will ensue if Lord Frederick should be told this falsehood. It will involve us all in greater disquiet than we suffer at present. Then what has influenced you, my dear Miss Milner? That which impels all my actions— an unsurmountable instinct, a fatality, that will forever render me the most miserable of human beings. And yet you, even you, my dear Miss Woodley, will not pity me. Miss Woodley pressed her closely in her arms and vowed that while she was unhappy, from whatever cause, she still would pity her. Go to Mr. Dorforth, then, and prevent him from imposing upon Lord Frederick. But that imposition is the only means of preventing the duel— replied Miss Woodley. The moment I have told him that your affection was but counterfeited, he will no longer refuse accepting the challenge. Then at all events I am undone, exclaimed Miss Milner, for the duel is horrible, even beyond everything else. How so, returned Miss Woodley, since you have declared you do not care for Lord Frederick. But are you so blind, returned Miss Milner, with a degree of madness in her looks, as to believe that I do not care for Mr. Dorforth? Oh, Miss Woodley, I love him with all the passion of a mistress, and with all the tenderness of a wife. Miss Woodley at this sentence sat down. It was on a chair that was close to her. Her feet could not have taken her to any other. She trembled. She was white as ashes, and deprived of speech. Miss Milner, taking her by the hand, said, I know what you feel. I know what you think of me, and how much you hate and despise me. But heaven is witness to all my struggles, nor would I, even to myself, acknowledge the shameless prepossession, till forced by a sense of his danger. Silence, 
cried Miss Woodley, struck with horror. And even now, resumed Miss Milner, have I not concealed it from all but you, by plunging myself into a new difficulty, from which I know not how I shall be extricated? And do I entertain a hope? No, Miss Woodley, nor ever will. But suffer me to own my folly to you, to entreat your soothing friendship to free me from my weakness, and, oh, give me your advice, to deliver me from the difficulties which surround me. Miss Woodley was still pale, and still silent. Education is called second nature. In the strict, but not enlarged, education of Miss Woodley, it was more powerful than the first. And the violation of oaths, persons, or things consecrated to heaven was, in her opinion, if not the most enormous, yet among the most terrific in the catalogue of crimes. Miss Milner had lived so long in a family who had imbibed those opinions, that she was convinced of their existence. Nay, her own reason told her that solemn vows of every kind ought to be sacred. And the more she respected her guardian's understanding, the less did she call in question his religious tenets. In esteeming him, she esteemed all his notions, and among the rest, venerated those of his religion. Yet that passion, which had unhappily taken possession of her whole soul, would not have been inspired, had there not subsisted an early difference in their systems of divine faith. Had she been early taught what were the sacred functions of a Roman ecclesiastic, though all her esteem, all her admiration, had been attracted by the qualities and accomplishments of her guardian, yet education would have given such a prohibition to her love, that she would have been precluded from it, as by that barrier which divides a sister from a brother. This, unfortunately, was not the case, and Miss Milner loved Dorriforth without one conscious check to tell her that she was wrong, except that which convinced her her love would be avoided by him with detestation and with horror. Miss Woodley, something recovered from her first surprise and sufferings, for never did her susceptible mind suffer so exquisitely, amidst all her grief and abhorrence, felt the pity that was still predominant, and recoiled to the faults of Miss Milner by her misery, she once more looked at her with friendship, and asked, what she could do to render her less unhappy. "'Make me forget,' replied Miss Milner, "'every moment of my life since I first saw you. That moment was teeming with a weight of cares, under which I must labor till my death.' "'And even in death,' replied Miss Woodley, "'do not hope to shake them off. If unrepented in this world,' She was proceeding, but the anxiety her friend endured would not suffer her to be free from the apprehension that, notwithstanding the positive assurance of her guardian, if he and Lord Frederick should meet, the duel might still take place. She therefore rang the bell and inquired if Mr. Dorriforth was still at home. The answer was, he had rode out. You remember, said Miss Woodley, he told you he should dine from home. This did not, however, dismiss her fears and she dispatched two servants different ways in pursuit of him, acquainting them with her suspicions, and charging them to prevent the duel. Sandford had also taken his precautions, but though he knew the time, he did not know the exact place of their appointment, for that Lord Elmwood had forgotten to inquire. The excessive alarm which Miss Milner discovered upon this occasion was imputed by the servants, and by others who were witness of it, to her affection for Lord Frederick while none but Miss Woodley knew, or had the most distant suspicion, of the real cause. 
Mrs. Horton and Miss Fenton, who were sitting together expatiating on the duplicity of their own sex in the instant just before them, had, notwithstanding the interest of the discourse, a longing desire to break it off, for they were impatient to see this poor, frail being whom they were loading with their censure. They longed to see if she would have the confidence to look them in the face, them, to whom she had so often protested that she had not the smallest attachment to Lord Frederick, but from motives of vanity. These ladies heard with infinite satisfaction that dinner had been served, but met Miss Milner at the table with a less degree of pleasure than they had expected, for her mind was so totally abstracted from any consideration of them, that they could not discern a single blush or confused glance which their presence occasioned. No, she had before them divulged nothing of which she was ashamed. She was only ashamed that what she had said was not true. In the bosom of Miss Woodley alone was that secret entrusted, which would call her to blush into her face, and before her she did feel confusion. Before the gentle friend, to whom she had till this time communicated all her faults without embarrassment, she now cast down her eyes in shame. Soon after the dinner was removed, Lord Elmwood entered, and that gallant young nobleman declared, Mr. Sandford had used him ill in not permitting him to accompany his relation, for he feared that Mr. Dorriforth would now throw himself upon the sword of Lord Frederick, without a single friend near to defend him. A rebuke from the eye of Miss Woodley, which from this day had a command over Miss Milner, restrained her from expressing the affright she suffered from this intimation. Miss Fenton replied, "'As to that, my lord, I see no reason why Mr. Dorforth and Lord Frederick should not now be friends.' "'Certainly,' said Mrs. Horton, "'for as soon as my Lord Frederick is made acquainted with Miss Milner's confession, all differences must be reconciled.' "'What confession?' asked Lord Elmwood. Miss Milner, to avoid hearing a repetition of that which gave her pain even to recollect, rose in order to retire into her own apartment, but was obliged to sit down again, till she received the assistance of Lord Elmwood and her friend, who led her into her dressing-room. She reclined on a sofa there, and though left alone with that friend, a silence followed of half an hour. Nor when the conversation began was the name of Dorforth once uttered. They were grown cool and considerate since the discovery, and both were equally fearful of naming him. The vanity of the world, the folly of riches, the charms of retirement, and such topics engaged their discourse, but not their thoughts, for nearly two hours. And the first time the word Dorforth was spoken was by a servant, who with hilarity opened the dressing-room door, without previously rapping, and cried, Madam, Mr. Dorforth. Dorforth immediately came in, and went eagerly to Miss Milner. Miss Woodley beheld the glow of joy and of guilt upon her face, and did not rise to give him her seat, as was her custom when she was sitting by his ward, and he came to her with intelligence. He therefore stood while he repeated all that had happened in his interview with Lord Frederick. But with her gladness to see her guardian safe, she had forgot to inquire of the safety of his antagonist, of the man whom she had pretended to love so passionately. Even smiles of rapture were upon her face, though Dorforth might be returned from putting him to death. This incongruity of behaviour Miss Woodley observed, and was confounded, but Dorforth, in whose thoughts a suspicion either of her love for him, or indifference for Lord Frederick, had no place, easily reconciled this inconsistency, and said, 
You see by my countenance that all is well, and therefore you smile on me before I tell you what has passed. This brought to her the recollection of her conduct, and now, with looks ill-constrained, she attempted the expression of an alarm she did not feel. "'Nay, I assure you, Lord Frederick is safe,' he resumed, and the disgrace of his blow washed entirely away, by a few drops of blood from this arm, and he laid his hand upon his left arm, which rested in his waistcoat as a kind of sling. She cast her eyes there, and seeing where the ball had entered the coat-sleeve, she gave an involuntary scream, and sank upon the sofa. Instead of that affectionate sympathy which Miss Woodley used to exert upon her slightest illness or affliction, she now addressed her in an unpitying tone, and said, "'Miss Milner, you have heard Lord Frederick is safe. You have therefore nothing to alarm you.' Nor did she run to hold a smelling-bottle, or to raise her head. Her guardian, seeing her near fainting, and without any assistance from her friend, was going himself to give it. But on this Miss Woodley interfered, and having taken her head upon her arm, assured him, it was a weakness to which Miss Milner was accustomed, that she would ring for her maid, who knew how to relieve her instantly with a few drops. Satisfied with this, Dorforth left the room, and a surgeon being come to examine his wound, he retired into his own chamber. End of chapter 15